what you'll hear on Patreon. And there was pretty comprehensive change in attitudes uh, due to the fact that he discovered he had a brain and could benefit from education, something which he'd not discovered before he entered prison. So prison actually in that respect may have done him a favor. And at the last minute, an allegation was made against him by another prisoner. And the allegation was that this guy was going to commit a murderous assault on a member of staff. This was about the most unlikely thing that I had ever heard of. Um, but of course, that allegation being made, he was recalled to, to close prison straight away. And I had another parole hearing shortly afterwards. And there was uh, no doubt in my mind that this was a malicious allegation. Interestingly, the parole board said they accepted that it was a malicious allegation. But then a prison psychologist came along who said he also accepted that it was a false and malicious allegation. The prisoner concerned was in fact known for making them. But um, however, the prison psychologist said that because of the offence he'd committed and because of the fact they now had a new um, programme for violent offenders, he should stay in and do that course, which he did. He had to, obviously. Um, he then had a kind of breakdown and arrived at subsequent parole hearings looking uh, very disheveled, uh, uh, grumpy, um, unkempt. Uh, and uh, frankly, I, I was not altogether surprised. But I was involved in, uh, I think, four more parole hearings uh, involving this prisoner. And eventually uh, I came to um, the final the final one. So out of this 14-year recommended minimum, and with no reason at all, other than the fact that there was a course available, uh, this guy had now done 22 years. And um, I made it very plain at the parole hearing. I could see no reason whatsoever why he, uh, why this should have happened. Um, there were no indications that he posed a risk, a lot of indications that he did not. And uh, I finally said, look, to be frank, I think he should have been released on tariff at 14 years. I think he's done eight years too long already. And the prison psychologists opposed his release, but the parole board did release him. They ordered his immediate release. And the last time, he used to phone me every so often afterwards when he, he'd, he'd come out. And um, uh, he's doing fine. I'm uh, Dr. Robert Ford. I'm a retired forensic psychologist. Um, for the last 20 years or so that I was working, I was a, uh, an independent consultant, so I was my own employer. Uh, and most of the work that I did was uh, expert witness work in courts, including parole hearings. In fact, 
in the latter few years, mostly parole hearings. Um, that generally involved risk assessment um, for people who were uh, being considered for parole and that uh, invariably, almost invariably meant lifers. I have your book here. I recommend it to everyone, Bad Psychology. It's a great title. How Forensic Psychology Left Science Behind. And you got in, uh, we actually met because you got in touch with me after reading uh, one of my articles in the New Statesman. And I, it was a, not a cr criticism, a sort of constructive criticism that I definitely do not often get, which was that I was not being critical enough. <laughs> uh, usually I get, you know, flack for being too much of a critic. Um, can you give me a sense of why you wanted to get in touch with me? What was I not critical enough about? I felt that um, I agreed with a great deal of what you said, probably all of it, actually. Um, the only reason that I, I, I might have said you were not critical enough, I think, is, is that um, perhaps the, the, there were some concrete examples of things which had gone quite badly wrong. Um, and the particular thing that concerned me was uh, the... Um, uh, courses or programs that were being run for sex offenders in British prisons. Um, and as I'm sure you know, there was a, a minor scandal, far too minor in my opinion, uh, about the fact that these courses were finally scientifically evaluated and demonstrated to be raising risk in sex offenders and not reducing it. Um, and um, that's a bit of a kind of bugbear of mine. Uh, I, I would like to see further action taken ab about that, and it has not been. It's been largely ignored, and I think nobody wants to grasp the nettle. means changing policy. Well, they've changed the policy. They cancelled those particular programs. They've introduced new programs which are equally untested um, and have not evaluated those in any meaningful way. So we could, 20 years down the line, be having exactly the same scandal all over again. We just don't know. And one of the reasons we don't know is that we don't know why it went wrong the first time. Well, my research is on um, emotion. So I, I look at, I use emotion kind of as, a, as an umbrella for understanding how society makes sense of an increasing range of problems through the realm of emotion. So the idea is that if you could just find out why people have this sort of disordered internal world, go in and fix that then you will change their behaviors and then you will solve all these problems. So it's a very sort of behavioral, kind of individuated view of, of social problems. And one of the studies that I did was on mindfulness. And um, I, it's a very common criticism. You need to go and you really need to uh, talk about how there's just so much scientific evidence for this stuff. And it wouldn't be everywhere if there wasn't a solid evidence base. And it's like the, the very fact that it's everywhere is indicative of it enough of the fact that there must be a solid evidence base. But of course, you know, these things progress. There's been criticism of the evidence base uh, and these things just take off regardless. Um, and I wondered if you could speak to that in relation to forensic psychology and some of the interventions there, that this is one of the, the, the things that you describe in the book that people would say, well, we wouldn't be using it if it didn't have a good evidence base. Yeah, that um, uh, that certainly applies. Uh, I've heard of some of the stuff you're talking about in the case of mindfulness. Um, and indeed, there are some fairly alarming <laughs> results from some studies. Um, with respect to the sex offender programs, uh, when I initially started 
doing risk assessments for the parole board, uh, I was just as uncritical as anybody else um, for maybe a month or two. Um, and um, in some cases, actually recommended that some of the people I dealt with uh, should undertake these courses. Um, but it wasn't long before I uh, decided to look a bit closer at some of the, the evidence that was available. Because when I asked colleagues who were in the prison service, um, what, uh, or the Ministry of Justice, what, um, what evidence there was, they didn't seem to be able to tell me. So I had a look at some of the papers that had been published and realized that a lot of them didn't prove anything at all. Um, they were very poor uh, designs very often. They not only didn't show, uh, they could not have shown if there was a treatment effect um, because they were very biased in favor of a result which tended to support the use of the programs. Um, now, there are many points of view about what constitutes good evidence, but there is a general agreement that um, uh, randomized controlled trials are the best way of evaluating treatments, not only in psychology, but in health generally. Um, and it was quite clear that none of the published studies even approached that level of, of rigor in their design. And uh, that was very troubling to me. In fact, really, with, with most of them, I wondered why on earth they'd even been published. Uh, I think I say in the book that uh, it's, it strikes me that editors are far too easily persuaded to publish papers that don't actually prove anything. Um, but anyway, um, having had a look at the evidence for myself, I did actually come across one or two randomized controlled trials and found that they showed no treatment effect at all. And there was just a hint uh, from some of them that maybe uh, these things were actually counterproductive. There then came um, a, a couple of uh, uh, wide-ranging studies, which again indicated that they might be counterproductive. Um, and it, I began to get extremely worried about this. I certainly had long since stopped recommending people actually undertake these courses. But when people were being evaluated by the parole board, I was saying, um, I don't think we should attach too much weight to these treatment courses because they have not been shown to be effective. There is even a possibility they might be counterproductive. Uh, and the parole board simply did not want to know. Um, I mean, one judge actually said to me, do you mean to say that all we're doing is waiting for these people to become too old to be a risk? And I said, that's what you're doing anyway. I'm sorry, but it is. These treatment courses may or may not work, but the evidence we have so far doesn't show that they do. And it eventually emerged that they were actually raising risk and not lowering it. Even then, um, the Ministry of Justice was very reluctant to face up to the fact it took them. Uh, first of all, they refused to accept the evidence, despite being told by their own uh, researchers that it was the best quality evidence that had ever been produced. Um, they refused to accept it and demanded that things should be reanalyzed. So 
The researchers went away and reanalyzed it, and uh, it, they took about a couple of years to do that. And uh, they uh, came back and said, no, it's just as bad as we thought it was. And this, in fact, happened twice. And each time they came back and said, no, it's just as bad as we thought it was. It still took the Ministry of Justice a further three years to stop running these courses. Um, so basically, for five years, they knew the evidence was highly questionable. And for three years, they knew the courses were making people worse, and they still carried on with them. I want to come back to that, the consequences of this, and why is this happening? But could you give me, I want to know a little bit more about these interventions. Can you give me a sense of what is it that um, people are doing? What are they recommending to people? Um, what are these interventions like, and where are they being used? Well, they were being used in, in prisons, and in particular, they, uh, some of them are used in the community. The probation service was running quite a few in the community. Uh, interestingly, one or two of the studies, wide-ranging studies that have been done, suggest there might be some beneficial effect from courses being done in the community, but quite a small one. Um, but uh, the ones that were being run in prisons and the ones that are being run in the community are along much the same lines. Um, the assumption, and, and I stress assumption, is that if you can change the added beliefs that people express, you will then be able to uh, change the actions that flow from these attitudes and beliefs. Um, I think as psychologists, we actually ought to be a bit cleverer than that and realize that people express attitudes and beliefs for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, the fact that they might be true, a genuine reflection of their attitudes and beliefs, is only one possible reason for that. Um, they are I mean, prisoners in this situation are under enormous pressure to uh, say the right things. Um, they're under enormous pressure to do they the sort of homework they get they get written homework uh, about which they do in their cells not always singly and individually as as they're quite quite uh, open to telling us um uh, it, as it, it struck me as extraordinary that nobody seemed to have thought of the idea that prisoners might actually collaborate and in writing up for their, their, their homework which is supposedly carried out individually on their own um it, considering that it, for reasons of um, economy, they tended to run these courses in dedicated prisons. So they're all sex offenders, basically, in, the, in these units uh, and, and all doing the same courses. And the idea that they might communicate with each other outside of the treatment session didn't seem to have occurred to anybody. So that was a major problem. Uh, people obviously want to produce the right results. Uh, which from their point of view means the, the sort of result that's going to satisfy the people running the, the treatment because they want to get a good report at the end of it. And some of the more manipulative people are extremely good at getting good reports from people. Um, and that may account for some of the uh, counterproductive effect. I can't be sure of that. Uh, in fact, really, I've got to say that we do not know why the courses made people worse. We only know that they did. Um, we cannot be sure of why. There are a number of possible reasons for that, and there's been a lot of speculation. But basically, trying to change people's attitudes, 
trying to change people's uh, belief systems, which I don't believe is possible in that situation. And I've gone into it in the, in, in the book, actually, in, in, at some uh, length, comparing what was done in uh, prison-based courses to what was done in uh, thought reform camps in China, for example, during, during the Korean War. Um, I'm sure my colleagues will thank me for that, uh, for, for the comparison. But actually, there is a very valid comparison. Uh, and that is that you're trying to do the same thing, really. You're trying to uh, change people's attitudes in the hope that um, the actions which you assume are based on those attitudes will also change. Now, that might be a jolly good idea if it worked. But the outstanding feature of Chinese thought reform is that it did not work, essentially. It worked so long as people were still in the camp. Um, but the degree of intrusiveness uh, and the degree of control that was exercised in thought reform camps um, far exceeded that which would be allowed in a westernized democratic society in prisons. So basically, you wouldn't expect them to be terribly effective anyway, by comparison. But even the tot almost total control of the, uh, that the, uh, was exercised in, in the thought reform camps um, vanished and even rebounded um, when people left the camps, when, when they left the camps and, and returned to their previous life. The previous life circumstances reasserted themselves. Um, you don't have to be a sociologist to see that. You know, there's a lot of social psychology on things like this too. And uh, we might reasonably have considered what happens when you send people out again to the place they came from which produced those attitudes and beliefs. But I think there is a deeper problem, and that is that there is approximately zero evidence that you can really affect behavior patterns by uh, trying to impact the, the expressed, I, st I stress expressed attitudes and behaviors that people have, because there is no evidence that atti attitudes uh, in any meaningful sense lead to behavior. Um, there is even a very strong argument that the behavior comes first and we adopt the attitudes that suit the behavior we've got. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence for that. There is an enormous amount of evidence that the, uh, the way that we process information that comes in is affected by an emotional response which takes place within the individual before they're even aware that there is anything intellectual, so to speak. To, to, to respond to, there's any information to respond to. So uh, that's, that complicates the issue enormously. At the very least, I mean, one of the things that I found um, funny, I guess, as a sociologist was that they do all of these, um, you know, checklists and so on to try to assess risk. And, um, you know, they're sort of complex and very expensive kind of instruments to create and, and use and so on. And they appear to be not much better than what I, as a sociologist, would tell you um, using social statistics and sort of population level averages, which cannot be predictive at the individual level anyway, but you can kind of give a, an average there. But I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about how things progress so far in terms of doing so much research and uh, getting so much funding for this stuff with a, such a poor evidence base. Um, how does that happen? I've seen this happen in my own research. You know, just people, you know, you have circular citing, people sort of cite each other, and then they start saying, oh, well, there's a consensus, but it's just, it's a lot of people who are already invested. 
in the efficacy of the program or the intervention or whatever it might be. Uh, is that what's going on here or is there a bigger story? I think it's exactly what's going on. Um, the The fact is that there there is a a sort of community within a professional community, um, those people who are dealing with sex offenders. Um, uh, I'm not going to speculate on the motives why they choose to do that. Uh, one of the things that did come across to me is that I think some of the psychologists concerned actually find sex offenders intimidating. Um, and therefore, they're quite strongly motivated to do something to change these people. Um, but that's just a kind of personal impression. I'm not going to wax too, too lyrical about that. There is no doubt that many sexual offenses are very damaging, um, even those that are not violent in a sort of traditional sense, the sense of beating people up and causing bruises, are essentially violent anyway. Basically, all sex offenses are a form of violence. And, um, and incidentally, uh, some of those checklists you mentioned um, show that if you use uh, um, information about sex offenders to predict violence as opposed to sexual offending specifically, they're just as good at predicting, <laughs> at predicting further sexual offend offending. So um, uh, one of the, the problems, I think, is there is this sort of self-reinforcing thing that everybody agrees this is the way to proceed. And so, um, A, they don't feel they need a lot of evidence. B, I think they feel that they see a lot of evidence of change in the people that they're working with. Um, they, they feel that uh, particular individuals have developed a lot and have changed their attitudes a lot um, and that this bodes well. Um, unfortunately, um, you, you'll be aware of the phenomenon of confirmation bias, of course, and um, I think there is a great deal of that in, in this setting. I think um, because, because people believe in the effectiveness of their interventions, which they regard as a form of therapy, they want to believe that they are doing well. I mean, why wouldn't you? Any therapist would like to believe that they were achieving something good by doing the work they're doing. Otherwise, why would they do it? Um, so uh, I, I don't doubt for one moment the genuineness of, of people's motivations to produce an effective intervention. But I think what has happened is that a quality of evidence has been accepted uh, because it shows the result that they wanted it to show and not because it had the scientific rigor which they really should, should have uh, demanded. Um, and, and that's been the case for many, many years. It's been the case with courses for violent offenders as well. Um, and they've not been evaluated, so we don't know what they do. Uh, but um, so you've got this confirmation bias going on and this self-reinforcing group of people who are all patting each other on the back for their great interventions and all of this. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it influences people's behavior. I mean, we're looking at the behavior of the psychologist now rather than the, uh, uh, the prisoners. But, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's how people get their sort of social validation. They, um, uh, lots of people are telling them uh, that they're doing the right stuff and they're, 
they have a, a great admiration for the work they're doing and this sort of thing. And people have a vested interest. If you are um, a someone who is several years postdoctoral and has started to build a career on doing this kind of work, you're going to be very resistant to being told it's ineffective, let alone, God forbid, that it should be counterproductive. Um, because it, it strikes at the heart of who you think you are um, and what sort of person you are. And you think you're a competent professional and everybody tells you you are and they're all doing the same thing. So uh, why would you not believe that you are? Um, if you don't trust your own judgment, you're going to trust theirs because they know what they're doing. Um, and it's quite hard to criticize on that basis as well. Uh, it's uh, I, I've given talks and been approached by prison service trainee psychologists, trainee forensic psychologists afterwards who have complained to me, not that I can do anything about it, but they've complained to me of the treatment they've had at the hands of senior colleagues who have in some cases basically told them you're going to be out of a job if you carry on questioning things the way you are. Um, that's really quite rough. It's quite vicious. And I know of at least one uh, <laughs> who actually left without completing her training. Uh, and of course, most of the people actually conducting these evaluations are actually trainees. They're not fully qualified psychologists anyway. So it's very easy for them to be intimidated. Um, but as I say, I know of one who actually left and is now doing a doctorate in uh, uh, criminology at, a, at a, a university in Cambridge. So <laughs> it's... Yeah. Um, it's come over to the dark side. That's one win for sociology and the social sciences. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I think, I mean, the, the fundamental problem, and as a sociologist, I'm sure you'll understand this, but the fundamental problem, I think, is that uh, the psychologists in, in this field of study have concentrated far too much on people as individuals um, and not given any thought to the context within which their uh, actions uh, occur. I, I give an example in the book of other uh, well, a couple of examples of other programs which also turned out to be counterproductive. And in particular, um, the uh, Scared Straight program, um, where kids are basically taken into prisons and spoken to by uh, long-term prisoners. Uh, and I know some prisoners who've, been, who've done some of that work, or I did know some prisoners who've done some of that work, and and they say they hope it does have an impact because they would like to divert kids from doing the kind of things that they did that got them into such trouble. And these are lifers. I mean, they've killed people generally. So uh, they, uh, they really don't want to see people, young, young kids from the same sort of background as themselves, getting into that sort of difficulty. The trouble is we know from the evaluations that scared straight programs are actually counterproductive. And... Um, that's been shown in several different studies now in several different places. Uh, again, we don't know why, but if you think about it, it must be clear, surely, that if you're persuading people, young people, to give up their uh, uh, peer group, essentially, to, to, to give up the gangs they belong to, to give up the drugs, uh, what are they going to do? They're going to be sitting around um, with no friends at home. And how long is it going to be before they drift back? Because they don't have an alternative. They drift back to the same sort of group who then is going to say, well, you know, you abandoned us. You've got to prove yourself now. Prove you're one of us. 
And it would not surprise me at all if in those circumstances somebody started doing things that were worse than what they had done before. Um, again, with things like the Cambridge-Somerville study, which is really, we're going back to the sort of 40s and 50s here. Uh, that was shown uh, to make kids worse. Uh, and, and it was also shown in follow-up studies that some of that uh, deleterious effect persisted for as long as 30 years. If you take people and if you put people back into that, uh, there's no other moral universe that people have to kind of draw on that's also reinforced by relationships. So context is very, it's very complex. And I, I just I just find this so difficult when I'm teaching students. And I'm kind of thinking like, oh, how would we think about this issue socially? Because they find it very easy to think about like an individual make a mistake and that leads to a social problem. So if we talk about knife crime, they're like, oh, we could just like tell young people that knife crime is bad. And we need to raise awareness and this sort of thing. Like they don't know. But this is like what young people will say when you kind of first get them in a sociology classroom. And I start kind of trying to open it up to context and think about like, well, what kind of community do you live in? What... Um, why would you need like some kind of physical force? What what does this, you know, um, what's being reinforced by these kinds of behaviors and so on and trying to open up this big world to people. And they're like, oh, OK, so then we need to go to the families and try to intervene there so that we can, inter you know, change the behaviors of the parents. And I'm like, no, context is like seven layers of you know, it's your social class, it's your community, it's your family, it's your friends, it's it's the meaning systems, it's all of these things. And you it's it's not possible to go in with a simple behavioral intervention, even at the level of the family, and change all of that. Yeah, I'm just reminded of uh uh, uh something I read um quite some time ago and I can't remember the details, but uh it was uh, uh people working with uh with young offenders. Uh, particularly um, people who got involved in sort of low-level drug uh, trading and that sort of thing. And um, they actually persuaded some of these kids to look at the amount of time that they were spending uh, doing all these criminal actions, the amount of time they, they were spending hanging around street corners and waiting for the guy with the big car with the tinted windows to roll up and give them their supplies and so on and looked at how much money they were making. And they eventually ended up saying, you, you realize that actually, if you, if you look at this on an hour by hour basis, you're, you're earning less than minimum wage here. You could do better, you could, you'd make more money stacking shelves in the supermarket. The guy in the big car with tinted windows is making plenty of money because he's got, he's got a hundred others like you he's running. <laughs> and it was a bit of a revelation. They hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of what we do is like that. It's based on on an idea of of who we are and an idea of what we need to do to have status and what we need to do to impress people. I mean, the knife carrying thing that you mentioned. Uh, it's it's yes, I'm sure it is uh, partly to do with the fact that people feel threatened. It's like gun ownership in the states, you know. You look at the people who are so in favor of guns. You look at the rhetoric. It's all about how the world is full of bad people. And you've got to protect yourself, uh, despite the fact that nobody ever seems to protect themselves very effectively with, with these things. They just get killed. Um, uh, it's, it's people who are scared and they, they feel disempowered. But having a weapon makes you feel more powerful, makes you feel protected. And 
Uh, a lot of the time that is illusory. We know that a lot of people who get stabbed actually get stabbed with their own weapons. Um, again, sometimes presenting that sort of information to people can make them see it in a different light. But it's very hard to persuade people that what they need to do for a status or for security or whatever um, is something different from what all their friends are doing and all the people around them are doing. Uh, why, why would they believe you? And but also, I'm just I mean, getting another quick oh yeah, plug. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'd just like to get a, a quick plug. If you look at the work of uh, Judith Rich Harris, which is not new now, it's decades old, um, but she really uh, shocked the uh, social psychological establishment at that time by basically demonstrating that kids, uh, you know, teenagers, were not terribly interested in being successful adults. They were interested in being successful teenagers and peer groups were far more important than parents and family and all the rest of it, teachers, uh, in, in shaping their behavior. And we need to be aware of that. I think also you have to think about, um, I don't want to get lost in this example for too long, but you have to think about like, what does a knight having a weapon tell other people to? Like it tells people I'm not someone to be messed with because then you're going to be someone that's going to be messed with <laughs> if you're not yeah. careful. And so I think what often gets lost in this is that there's an assumption that people in particular milieus are simply making a mistake, you know, and if we could just go in and tell them the error of their ways, then we could somehow fix them. Instead of realizing, as I say, that there's a complex sort of social universe that, you know, I don't want to plug sociology too much. I want to be like a sociological fundamentalist, but I think some of the, the methods that we use like ethnography do allow us to kind of immerse ourselves in that world and see how things that appear to be mistaken on the outside fit. It may be mistaken in the sense of like in the long run, it's, you know, obviously not good to be carrying a weapon because <laughs> you, as you said, you're more likely to be uh, a victim of your own weapon. Um, but that these things sort of fit into a particular universe and they make sense within that universe. And also I think in a world in which, sorry, you know, in a world in which, you know, uh, long-term benefits just don't come. You know, they're just, if you don't eat now, you're not going to eat. Like if you don't consume, I remember like I saved up all of my money for ages and ages and for this pair of, um, this pair of trousers that I really wanted I had to watch my language because I live in Wales. And when I tell this story, I, I tell it that I, I saved up for a pair of khaki pants, which currently means something totally different in Welsh English. So trousers, I saved up this pair of trousers that I had seen at the mall and I wanted them so desperately and I saved and saved. I like, you know, couch cushions, surfed, tried to find all the change that I could. I think I even sold chocolate bars door to door at one point uh, to get this money. And I was so proud of myself. I bought these trousers, actually bought two pairs and I laid them out on my bed and I admired them. And then I went to my friend's house and when I came back, they were stolen. And it was just like, you know, why? Why did I even bother? You know, why did I bother saving up for the future? You know, how much enjoyment I could have had from that money in my life that had so few enjoyments. If you're, if you've got money, you better spend it because good things just don't happen. Right. And so if you have, I think it's also this, this sense, like people from a different social class in which saving up for the future means that you do get those benefits. They kind of look at these people and like, well, why don't you just do that? Like, why don't you understand, you know, well, you know, I'm not going to go to university. I'm not gonna like, uh, get out of here. I want to be the top dog. I want to be the, the one who's, who's got it all in the ways that are appeared to be available to me. So it, it makes sense within a milieu. And if you just shove people back into that milieu, that's what's going to happen again. I think, I think you're absolutely right. 
uh, and uh, my background, which was positively, in some respects, uh, cosseted, middle class, um, uh, well-educated, and all the rest of that, um, up to a point anyway. <laughs> um, but there, there, there may have been one or two other problems, but um, uh, we certainly weren't going to be short of food um, next week. Uh, whereas actually my late wife, my first wife, um, came from a much different background uh, and had some trouble actually at times uh, adopting a, a, a longer term view. Um, and uh, uh, don't really want to about a great length, but um, it, it, her parents could be quite spendthrift, so they could end up living very well for the first half of the week, and then the second half of the week would be nothing but bread and jam for dinner. You know, it was uh, that that sort of thing. Um, and um, uh, and so uh, she had something of the attitude you've described, um, but you know that changes when you get educated, you leave that environment, you uh, get a good job and all the rest of it, uh, which, which she did. And uh, so uh, she sort of got out of that way of looking at things. But I remember when I first met her, because we were uh, <laughs> college sweethearts, I suppose. Uh, we met her when we were 19. Um, and um, so uh, uh, she still, as a student, very much had that sort of attitude. And I remember trying to expend some effort to persuade her to take a longer view of things sometimes because it's okay having money now, but it had to last you the rest of the term or whatever. And uh, uh, you had to be a little bit more, a little bit more careful. But I mean, as I say, getting out of that environment and finding that she could do things for herself and have a, a good job and a good pay and all the rest of it um, uh, soon uh, changed all of that. And of course, she was a bright person, so it, uh, it wasn't a big, uh, it, it wasn't a major problem. But I can see that it might have been if she had, for example, not gone to university, um, which originally uh, was quite on the cards. There was a lot of discouragement as far as her parents were concerned for doing that. Um, and they had their own reasons, but uh, uh, it, it could have gone another way. Uh, and actually, in terms of prediction, you mentioned earlier that these sort of statistical generalities which you can which you can create don't actually predict much at the individual level. Um, and that's absolutely right. Um, I remember going to a, a parole hearing where there's a relatively new member of the parole board. And I had said uh, something about the uh, characteristics of the prisoner that suggested, that the um, uh, chance of his reconviction was actually fairly low, especially at his age, because he was now getting on somewhat. And um, the um, the new parole board member said, uh, um, you, can you be sort of more specific than that? And I said, no, basically. Uh, uh, no, uh, risk assessment in this sort of situation, risk assessment is broad brush, and it can never be anything more than that. I can tell you that this man has an absence of some characteristics which might be regarded as very risky. And I can tell you there is a presence of some um, uh, risk factors or protective factors, if you like, which, su which suggest low risk. And I can tell you that statistically overall, um, there is a, 
whatever it was, let's say 70% chance that he will not reconvict or whatever in the next uh, five years or whatever it was. So it can't, you, you, you can't have precise uh, kind of predictions. And, and you say, well, you're, you're, you're starting to worry me. I said, well, what did you expect? <laughs> we can't foretell the future. So I may know that somebody um, will get very angry or is, or is likely to get very angry if you insult his mother, but I can't tell you whether he's going to meet anyone who'd be unwise enough to do that. Uh, so, you know, that's the sort of thing you're up against. You do not know, you, you do not know the future. And, and risk assessment is only saying other things being equal, then there is a, uh, this or that level of risk, but it's very broad brush. We can't be too precise. But you're in a situation in the, you know, in the judicial system and the justice system where they want something more than that. They wanted a, a kind of certification of some sort that, well, an expert said this. Can you give a little bit more insight into, you know, how the judgment of psychologists has, I don't know if this is still the case, but at least when you were uh, involved in in this system, kind of how psychologist judgment was viewed and, and the pressure that was on people to kind of make these kinds of prof you know, certain claims towards certainty. Um, yes, I, I think so. Uh, and actually, it does hark back to some extent to the issue of sex offender treatments and the weight that was placed on them. Yeah, you may remember the Anthony Price case. Um, Anthony Price was a sex offender who had been um, acquitted of a particular offence. Uh, he... Um, had also uh, been convicted of others and he'd, he'd gone down and he'd done the sex offender treatment program while he was in prison and was reckoned to have done very well. And however you judge that. And uh, maybe he was a slightly less, slightly better sex offender than he was before. I'm not quite sure how it works. Uh, but anyway, he, he came up for a parole hearing and the parole board, according to the subsequent inquiry, the parole board had been too easily influenced by evidence that he'd done well in the treatment program. Um, that, uh, and in fact, he went out and committed a nasty sexual murder. Not that, not that there's a nice one, but you know. Uh, and um, as I say, there was an inquiry. There's always a, a serious reoffense inquiry when this happens. And, uh, <coughs> and he, um, uh, it was it, it was judged that the parole board had, had laid too much emphasis on his his progress in, in the sex offender treatment program, and it's it, amongst other things. Um, and uh, what my impression was 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 that the, to some extent the parole board was looking for a way of spreading the responsibility. They wanted to be able to say. Um, we were assured by experts that this decision would be okay. And they wanted to have something concrete to base that on. So the fact that this chap had done the um, uh, sex offender treatment program was uh, uh, an indication. Now, I actually looked at the details of some cases, not necessarily that one, but certainly some cases where similar things had happened. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I wouldn't have released this guy. Um, but then I wouldn't have been influenced by the fact 
uh, not positively influenced anyway by the fact that he'd done the sex offender treatment program. But I would have looked at things like the fact that he was quite young, which is a risk factor for reconviction in everything. Um, I would have looked at the nature of his other offenses, which weren't uh, uh, very pleasant, um, and the frequency with which they'd occurred when he was free to commit them. Um, and that's one of the things which is actually quite instructive. If you look at the rate of offending, that is basically the number of offences per year or the amount of time between offences, um, uh, excluding any time that he spent inside when he couldn't commit them, um, uh, you, you actually can get quite an insight into how likely it is that somebody is going to, to, to commit another offence. These are relatively simple measures, but they don't use them. Um, it, my impression was also, and this is slightly, slightly trickier in a way, um, that they wanted to be doing something constructive. I mentioned earlier the judge who said, you know, are you saying that all we're doing is waiting for these men to become too old to be a risk? Um, and I'm afraid I think that is pretty much what we're doing. And um, they wanted to do something more constructive than that, in the same way that the treatment facilitators wanted to feel that they were doing a good job. The parole board also wanted to feel that they were taking a sound decision that had some sort of basis in, uh, some sort of therapeutic basis. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.